You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it. And I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Everything that I knew, I didn't know anymore. That defense mode. We're survivors. Like... But they're probably not the questions that you want answered. So, yeah, writing them down for us is important because of our chemo brain. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bloodline with LLS. I'm Alicia. And I'm Lizette. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode today. On today's episode, we will be joined by Rochelle Bell, who is a commercial actor, model, mother, wife, and lymphoma survivor, and I'm pretty sure the list goes on, who will be sharing her incredibly inspiring story with us today. Rochelle, please share with our audience a little about yourself and kind of get us warmed up for what's to come on this episode. Yes, of course. So my name is Rochelle. I'm now 33. I was diagnosed when I was 32 in February of this year, so about 11 months ago. I was diagnosed with stage 4 non-Hodgkin's lymphoma follicular grade 2. I'm a mother of a three-year-old. She was two when I was diagnosed, so that was very interesting. And I've been doing commercials and a model in L.A. my, let's see, for the last 15 years or so. I am married, and as of June this year, I've been in remission from non-Hodgkin's. And how were you diagnosed? I was diagnosed by my OBGYN during my routine pap smear, actually. They, uh, I don't even, I didn't have a general practitioner at the time. I just went to my yearly OB appointments and I had noticed a lump growing in my abdomen about a month prior. I was laying on my back and laying on my back, I was able to kind of look down at my stomach and I saw that one side was higher than the other one. But when you're pregnant, a lot of weird things happen and you're like, <laughs> your organs shift around and I always just blamed everything on the fact that I'd already had a baby and who knows what's happening in there. So I kind of just didn't worry about it. And then a few weeks later, I noticed it got a little bigger. I was a little concerned, but not, I didn't think it could be anything more than just maybe my organs shifting around or like my intestines or who knows what. But in February, I had my OB appointment and I went in thinking everything was totally fine. He does a, phys- a manual exam, you know, of your breasts and of your abdomen to make sure everything's good. And when he's feeling my abdomen, he said, uh, he was like, well, what is that? And I was like, I know, isn't that so weird? I have no idea what that is. It's been there for a little while. And he seemed really concerned. And he took a ultrasound to the lump exterior to kind of see what it, what it looked like in his eyes. And on the screen, it looked like a bunch of grapes grouped together, which was very interesting. I think he must have known immediately that was a group of lymph nodes, of swollen lymph nodes that kind of cluster together sometimes when they're swollen. And that's what it ended up being. And he sent me to a CAT scan. And after the CAT scan, they called and said there was innumerable masses in my abdomen and to get a PET scan. And this is all within like, you know, 24 hours of the initial red flag. And so, yeah, so I met with an oncologist the next morning at 7 a.m. He saw me before his office even opened, which was so kind, and ordered a PET scan and a biopsy. And then it takes about two weeks from that point to to kind of narrow down exactly what it was as far as grade, type, everything. I mean, he knew in the beginning when you see multiple 
the multiple masses in my abdomen and the way it looked, he knew it was either a lymphoma or possibly leukemia, they said at first, but then they ruled out leukemia and said it was a lymphoma. Then we were waiting to see if it was a Hodgkin or non-Hodgkin, and then what type of Hodgkin, and there are so many types, you know. So it's like you just kind of start up here, and you slowly, slowly get more information, and then finally two weeks in, I had an exact diagnosis. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that there's a lot of types of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Doctors are saying that it's over from the years that I've been here. First it was over 50 types, now 60, now 70, Mm -hmm. and it keeps growing. When people call us here, we always ask what type of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. It's really important for people to know what type they have because mm-hmm. they're so different, all of them. And the type you have, follicular, is a slow-growing type mm-hmm. that actually some people don't actually get treatment for a while. They're mm-hmm. monitored, which is treatment, to be monitored, but they're not given any medication for a while. Did you get medication right away or were you monitored first? No, I actually did get medication right away, and now looking, you know, when you're first diagnosed, because I'm pretty familiar with cancer because my father had kidney cancer six years ago, and he unfortunately passed away from it, and I was his sole caregiver, me and my brother, during that experience, so I was very familiar with the way oncology works, with how chemotherapy works and all that, and in my eyes and from what I had known at the time, you know, 11 months ago, was that when you have cancer, you treat it, and that time was everything. You know, the, the longer you wait, the more it spreads, and then once it spreads more, the more untreatable it is. So I was really coming from that point of view, and I really wanted to get it out of my body. You know, I really didn't <laughs> understand how any kind of cancer could stay in my body at all, and I wasn't really presented with watch and wait. I think because my mass in my abdomen was so large, I think it was like nine centimeters, mm-hmm. and they probably were concerned that it could cause situations with my other organs down there, move around, you know, I and it was also in my bones pretty badly. It was pretty much from my neck to my knees. So I'm assuming that's probably why the doctor was like, yes, let's start. And we did bendamustine rituxin, BNR. I saw the treatment about two or three weeks after I was diagnosed. So it all happened very fast. But like I said, looking back, now that I know so much about watch and wait and how it actually doesn't change overall survival, um, starting treatment early or not for what I have, I definitely should have waited a little longer. I feel like I really rushed into it. And I also think there's so much more to learn about follicular lymphoma specifically with the way medicine doesn't necessarily mean it gets out of your body and you're fine. It's not like that. If I did it again, and what I would tell other patients who are diagnosed with an indolent lymphoma is that time is on your side. You don't need to rush anything. You don't need to think that if you start treatment later rather than earlier, it's going to change the way things progress or the way, you know, the way you survive, because it really doesn't. And all the studies now show that, which is really interesting. And I do wish I took more time. So just going back, you said that at the time you thought that the bump was strange, but were there any other symptoms alongside that? Like you, you felt perfectly fine other than that mass? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I live a very normal, healthy life. I go to the gym every day. I eat really, really well. I run around, chase after my kid and travel a ton. I now looking back, I did have night sweats the year before, but there's also a lot of hormonal changes that happen with your body after pregnancy. And I thought it was a hormonal thing or I was just had too many covers on at night, (laughs) you know, um, but now like now since then, I haven't had it happen once since I've completed treatment. So I'm positive that was a uh, a symptom. But at the time when the doctor told me that, my first reaction was absolutely not. I 100% do not have any type of cancer. And everyone else's reaction was there's no chance. You're the healthiest person I know. There's no way. And I I know what cancer patients look like. My dad was one. You know, I know in my head 
what to expect from all this. And I in the mirror was not that. And so, you know, here I am <laughs> a stage four cancer patient. And um, it took a while to come to terms with that, obviously. But, you know, it, it comes in many shapes and sizes. And just because I'm, you know, at the time 32 and looked and felt healthy didn't mean that it couldn't get me. And how did you feel? What were your other emotions around that time when you received the news? You know, it's really the hardest part about all of it is the beginning, truthfully, because everything takes much time. So when you first get told, okay, leukemia or lymphoma, then you go home and you have, you know, 24 hours of searching the Internet and of trying to find all the information of leukemia, lymphoma, which is it? What could it be? And then you find out, okay, lymphoma, it's either Hodgkin's or Hodgkin's. Then you have 24 to 36 more hours, you know, of obsessing over which type it is and then from there you get a biopsy and the biopsy takes a week so you have a week of narrowing down you know looking at everything on the internet and there's some like this at the time it said like 65 different types of non-Hodgkin's so you're looking at the different symptoms from each one the survival rates of each one the age categories and tell, I'll tell you what it says follicular strikes mostly men over 65 and I'm not either of those things so I was pretty <laughs> sure I did not have follicular lymphoma it was like my, my least possible guess so, you know, it's, that's the hardest part. And my emotion, I was just very confused and I had so much anxiety over what it was. Because once you know what it is and you can actually properly get information on it. And it was really annoying that, you know, I think it probably took about two weeks, you know, to finally narrow down after the PET scan and the biopsy results came in and everything, exactly what type it was. And once I found out, it was definitely a relief because there are many worse types of lymphomas. Uh, it was a relief, but it was also devastating because unfortunately one thing I did know about follicular is that it's incurable so you either take the more deadly lymphomas that are much more aggressive but that can be cured you can go and live a normal life and not have to worry about it every single day or you have the ones that don't necessarily kill you fast like follicular but that are considered incurable so I feel like you have to live the rest of your life with this little dark cloud following you around of when's it going to come back the emotions were just crazy in the beginning as you can imagine um the good thing is having a child and having a two-year-old, you really don't have time to really do much more than take care of them during the day. To I didn't have time to sit on my computer or to obsess over it or to cry over this or that. So I was just kind of focused on being a good mom and good wife and good friend during the day and, and trying to just get through until we knew what was happening. But then at night, once everyone was sleeping, I was, you know, mm -hmm. in my bed. I didn't sleep for that first few weeks for sure. I was either crying or on my computer or on my phone looking at things in bed, just so confused and, and so in awe that this could be happening to me, which I'm sure every cancer patient goes through in the beginning. And like you said, what makes it different, too, is that it's indolent. It's a slow-growing lymphoma, and it's a chronic lymphoma. Mm -hmm. So it tends to always come back. While you're in remission, you're feeling well. Mm-hmm. But then is it somewhere in the back of your mind all the time, you know, when it comes back? Have you talked to your doctor about that? And, and do you know what, well, what's the plan when it comes back? Yeah, that's definitely in my mind a lot. And I've just recently started being able to live every day without that fear because I, I am 100% confident that if and when it does come back, I'll still be totally fine. And even if we were to transform, which many cases do transform into something more aggressive, I'll be fine then, too. I did notice that I had my first illness since remission where I last week was, you know, I had strep throat. And before that, before I was diagnosed with strep throat, I felt like my lymph nodes in my neck were getting swollen. I felt a little bit 
tired and I started to kind of freak out. I was like, oh, here it is. Here it is. It's coming. This is it. This is it. This is my recurrence. And then when the doctor said you have strep throat, I was like, oh, yes, I'm just sick. It's amazing. <laughs> I was so happy because in my it's head, so it's, like, it's so funny, right? I was like, I texted my friend saying, good news. It's only strep throat. <laughs> It does. I do think of sometimes like it's a little dark cloud that sometimes does follow me around of that of that when when, you know, when's it going to be? Am I going to have a two year remission, a five year remission, a six month remission, a 10 year remission? You just don't know. And, you know, you have to really just learn how to live your life not focusing on that and just being so thankful that I'm even in remission in the first place because people don't even get there. And I, I truly do have the confidence that if it does come back, I'll fight it again and I'll be okay. That's that's kind of the only way to look at this at this point. And I do have an amazing doctor who told me the truth about it all and, you know, told me, yeah, it probably is going to come back. She said she has a few patients who have received certain therapies where it hasn't come back, but those are either not approved yet for by the FDA for treatment, like the CAR-T cell isn't approved for follicular, but it will be soon, I'm sure. Uh, she's, she said that she does have people where it doesn't, but mostly it does, and she said it'll be fine when it does, and as of right now, I get scans every six months, and mine is actually next week, <laughs> so you start to have wow. anxiety, they say, you know, or right. anxiety, oh, wow, yeah, I know, it's the week of Christmas, too, like, how cruel. Oh, <laughs> oh my <laughs> It's going to be a great report. Yeah. It's the week before Christmas, so I'm like, is it going to be a great Christmas or a little stressful? But um, I'm pretty sure it'll be fine. But, you know, you have I have scans every six months and blood tests, and I'm definitely much more in tune with my body now. So I know where my lymph nodes are. I know how to feel them for swelling. I know, you know, how I should feel on a normal day. So if I don't feel right, I, you know, I would go into the doctor immediately. Right. So you mentioned going online and finding information there. And here at the LLS, we have LLS Community as well as we have so many different publications, we have chats where people can, you know, log in and speak to others who may be in the same exact situation or a similar situation to kind of gain that support so, so that they don't have that anxiety of Googling and kind of reading everything that they see and thinking that applies to them. What were your immediate steps in learning about your diagnosis outside of, you know, Googling and seeing what was out yeah. there on the Internet? Well, first and foremost, the biggest mistake with uh, Googling anything is that all of the information is mostly outdated. And lymphomas specifically have come so, so far in the past 10 to 15 years that anything you see online that is not literally within the last year, I feel like is not really a good source. Because, you know, at first, if you Google follicular lymphoma survival, it says 10 to 15 years. But that's because, you know, the Rituxan era completely changed everything. They still don't even really know how long you can live with since the Rituxan era because it's only been, you know, 15 or 20 years since that started. So, yeah, it does say 15 or 20 years right now because everyone's still going, you know, a lot of people are. So I think it's really important to, if you do look at anything on Google, it needs to be relevant time-wise. I think if you go to, there's certain companies and organizations that, that focus on relevant new information, LLS.org. I went to patients and caregivers, and there's a section called Newly Diagnosed where you can see exactly the steps to take. It has uh, referrals for specialists and for doctors. That's how I found um, my second opinion doctor, Dr. Ann Warbacher, was through there. Um, there's an 800 number I called <laughs> where I was like, uh, I don't know what type I have, but I was just diagnosed. And they, you know, normal, kind people that know what they're talking about, they're, they're really actually very, very educated on it. I, I was surprised at how much they knew the uh, info line. She gave me a lot of info. There's First Connection where they can connect you with somebody who, you know, has survived your diagnosis. There's so much that I was able to gain from that. 
in addition, I joined a Facebook group called Living with Follicular Lymphoma. And at the time, the group only had like 1,500 members. I think now it has over 3,000 in there from around the world. So you're able to really see who's getting treated and what, you know, people's first-line treatment in different parts of the world are different, actually, and what the FDA has approved. And so it's really amazing to connect with people that have actually survived or that were diagnosed also at my age because at the time I couldn't find anybody who was under 50 who had flipper lymphoma and it was really really confusing and I actually didn't believe that's what I had for a while because I thought the pathology had to be incorrect because there was nothing online of a you know a female in her early 30s that had it and so when I went on my Facebook group I found hundreds of women mothers and students and some even in their early 20s who had exactly exactly the same grade, the same stage, the same type of lymphoma that I have. And it was really comforting to talk to them. Wow. I can imagine. Yeah, I yeah, think finding in- a Facebook group is really, really helpful. Um, chat rooms, all of that. There's chat rooms as well on LLS. Yeah, we do have the online chats. Um, we have for young adults mm-hmm. as well as for lymphoma, um, for non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And I think it's really important what you're saying that, it's really nice to talk to somebody that's gone through mm-hmm. what you're going through. I know that everybody's different, but just to find somebody else. We're talking to so many young adults at this point mm-hmm. that have been diagnosed with diagnoses. Like you said, that people are really diagnosed over the age of 65. Mm-hmm. And that's where all of the research is. And that's right. what stats say. It doesn't pertain to me. So why am I even right. reading it? Right. It's true. It's true. But just that <laughs> connection. So glad that you found you know, a place to get that connection. And I know that here at LLS, we're trying harder and harder, you know, to do first connections and to really connect people, especially younger people who are diagnosed with diagnoses that are typically for older folks. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're not alone. Right. It's weird as I felt when, even when I received chemo, I, I always feel like I'm in this weird in between where I truly am too young to be in a cancer center, but I'm a little bit too old for children's hospital, unfortunately. But I feel like I, you know, I, it's this weird in between where I was always the youngest person, always uh, receiving chemo. And the other thing that I noticed is if there was another female in my age range receiving chemo, she would look at me and mouth like breast cancer or everyone just assumed 100% I had breast cancer. Um, even when my family found out, they're like, oh, she has breast cancer because they think that if you're, you know, a young 30s female, that's usually the kind of cancer you get. But it's actually... You know, follicular lymphoma, I have it. I have no breast cancer, thank God. But I don't think it's right to assume that just because a female who's under 65 years old has cancers in a cancer center, that that's the type of, you know, that it has to be breast cancer. But like I said, the young adult age range of cancer patients, I feel like it's a little neglected because I, it's such a weird place where I don't really feel like an adult yet. And I, did, I definitely don't feel like I belong in any kind of cancer clinic. And they look at you a certain way. And every time I walk in and wait, Everyone that's in there, like, looks at you with sad puppy dog eyes, like, oh, how sad. She's so young. You can just tell it's all they're thinking, you know, and it just breaks your heart because, as my doctor said when I was diagnosed, he's like, if you're going to get cancer, getting it while you're youngest and you're strongest, you can beat it, you know, and this is when to fight it. And it, it made me a little more um, a little, a little more thankful to have it while I'm young and, and strong versus older because it was at first so confusing how I could have this disease that mostly strikes older men, they say. We were actually just at a conference where, the keynote speaker, he got diagnosed when he was 25. Mm-hmm. Yep, 25. Yeah, and he was and he was diagnosed with myeloma. And, I mean, he got the same report. They were saying, 
you know, this isn't usually seen in anyone that's young. And we actually did a podcast with another young adult. He was 22 when he was diagnosed with myeloma. And again, the doctors even told him, they, they were like, you know, you're going to be kind of a trailblazer because we really don't have that much data on somebody diagnosed with myeloma at the age of 22. We're finding more and more, I feel like, people saying, you know, this isn't supposed to apply to me. Which is not what you want to hear. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. You want to hear, don't worry, we see this every day, and you're going to be totally fine. But that's not what you hear. You hear like, oh, my gosh, this is so weird. What's the weird lymphoma? Are you sure it's not Hodgkin's, you know? Yeah. Right, right. No, that's such a good point. So as a commercial actor and model, being diagnosed with this, how did you feel this would affect your career? Or did you even, did you not even think that? Did you just think, you know, I'm going to get through this, this is fine? Were there any thoughts about that? Oh, my gosh, of course. Yeah, it's, it's all I've done for 15 years. So I immediately thought, and I truthfully love it so much. I love, absolutely love doing commercials. A lot depends on if you have hair or not and what grade I had. Even if I were to have grade three follicular, a lot of times they treat it with R-chop and you likely lose your hair. So... I had no idea what kind of treatment I was going to get for the first few weeks. And if I were to lose my hair, I probably wouldn't be working for a while or I'd have to find some real realistic looking wigs. But I was so fortunate and bendamustine rituxin was, what I don't want to say it was easy, but it was not nearly as hard for me as it can be for others. I was sick a few days a month, probably three or four days after infusion. I would not feel well, but it felt kind of like mild flu symptoms. I kept my hair. I looked the exact same the entire time. I actually filmed four commercials wow. <laughs> during treatment. Wow. <laughs> I chose not to tell anybody in my work field because I didn't know if they would be okay hiring someone who was a cancer patient, especially since, you know, there's so many different liabilities involved being a cancer patient. And you just, you know, I'd, it's so much money they invest in filming and in commercial. I didn't want someone thinking, oh, is she going to be throwing up on set? Is she going to not be a well that day that she's working? Is her skin going to be different? I didn't even want to have to answer any questions about that. And since I looked the same and felt decent, I just chose to keep on working and keep my regular day-to-day life when I wasn't receiving chemo as normal as possible. And that really helped me get through it, just being able to still be myself 28 days a month. The two days a month when I was sitting, you know, in the <laughs> chemo chair for six hours were very different. And nobody really knew, except for my, you know, very close friends and my agents knew and so when I told them these two days I can't go on auditions and I cannot work they respected that and they were wonderful and supportive but then the days that I could work I did and it it was awesome that's great yeah how how about fatigue because I'm thinking you know a toddler and running after a toddler (laughs) I know how that feels yeah. yeah, I definitely had fatigue, but I fortunately have my, I'm from LA where I live and my husband's family is from here and my family is from here. So I have two amazing, you know, mothers, mother-in-law that really helped a lot. My husband as well helped a ton. And the good thing about a two-year-old is that they don't really care when you don't feel well. Like I think there was people like, what's going on? Why are you, why do you have bandages on your arms? What's, you know, but she didn't really ask any questions and she would, in the morning when I'd leave, I'd just say I'm going to the doctor, and she'd say, okay, have fun, you know, and I'd see you later. Didn't Two-year-olds are so in their own heads, and I think it really helped because if my daughter was older and I had to explain to her what was going on, it would have been much more complex on my end, but I had a lot of help, and fatigue is bad, but for me, it was only the first couple days, you know, so yeah, the first two days, three days after infusion, you definitely don't feel great, but I watched a lot of Netflix and <laughs> ate a lot of takeout, and I had friends deliver meals to me all the time, which was wow. so incredibly helpful. And, you know, 
the first when you're first diagnosed, you get like flowers and cards and this and that. But then you forget that this is like a six month process with seeding chemo. And then it kind of like silly tapers off and tapers off for most people, I think. But I had some friends that no matter what, on the day of my infusion would deliver dinner that night, would deliver, you know, juices from pressed juicery or lavender oil on my front door or warm slippers and a warm blanket. A nice relaxing candle. Just, I was, I felt like I was thought of the entire six months. And that was so incredible because, you know, in the beginning, the shock, like I said, everyone's like right there and supportive. And then you think that everyone just forgets about it after a while. But, um, but everyone really stepped up and helped me a lot. Speaking of caregivers, how did your husband react to, you know, this new diagnosis and, and having to rearrange things in regards to who would do what and, and or when they would do what? How was that? He was incredible. He stepped up when needed, and he was there 110%. He drove me around, and he took care of my daughter, no questions asked. He cooked, he cleaned, he did everything, and I think, you know, I knew it wasn't going to be permanent. I knew that this was only temporary, that I'd be not necessarily well enough to do those things as a mother and as a wife, but we've been together for 15 years, and, you know, we've been married for almost 10, and we've done a lot of amazing things together. So if we have to take a few months of slowing down life a little bit and um, maybe him doing more dishes and more baths, <laughs> my daughter than normal, he did it happily. And, and I'm very, very thankful for that because your caregivers are everything when you're in this position. Was it hard for you to ask for help? Did you ask for help? You know, at first I didn't, I was like, no, no, I don't need it. I don't need anything. When everyone was like, oh, I want to bring dinner. I was like, no, no, no. And then I kind of realized that it actually makes them feel better being able to help you. And like my mom was in such a hard position where she can't physically really make this go away. You know, she cannot make me better. But what she can do is cook me breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day and bring me things and take care of my daughter. And as much as I initially was like, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I realized that allowing people to help you also helps them and helps them cope with what you're going through because they feel like they're doing what they can. And sometimes, you know, making someone dinner or bringing someone flowers is truly all you can do to make this horrible situation better. So I eventually allowed it a lot more. And and I feel like I now know a lot about caregiving where if one of my friends or one of my family members is ever in this position again, I'm much more in tune to how to help them properly. That's an interesting perspective. Usually we hear, you know, the story of, you know, but the caregivers ended up doing or the kind of the relationship that either changed, you know, after diagnosis, but we've never heard the patient actually say, I learned more about the role of a caregiver. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's a really great point and what a lot of people should keep in mind during this time as well. Yeah, I think allowing someone to help you is very important. And especially if you're a mom because you're so used to taking the role of doing everything and not taking help and making all the food or this or that and allowing people to bring me something and then I noticed that it made them feel better it made me feel better and we were good (laughs) and I will definitely (laughs) reciprocate that role you know as needed in my life because it really does make a difference to see that you're just being thought of even if you don't need the food or you don't want the food or you don't need someone texting you all the time saying how are you it in the moment sometimes I'd be like oh my gosh everyone's asking how I'm doing it's overwhelming and then I realize like oh but what if nobody was asking how I'm doing it'd be thankful and I, and I realized that just responding back and that's how they people sometimes everyone copes with this in different ways and caregivers and people that love you are also going through something you know when you are and so I, I had to really acknowledge that and especially for my mom and my dad's passing being so recent you know in my family the word cancer means you die because that's what we know 
that is what we went through with my dad. And I had to make sure that everyone had a new point of view on that and that it was no longer a death sentence and that everyone saw, okay, look, she can have cancer and she can live and she can be okay. And this is not a guarantee, you know, one-way road. It, it, there's more to it. And I think now everyone in my family, even when they hear the word cancer or when, they, when anything comes up, I feel like it's a little more optimistic now because hopefully I'm an example of, of it not being, you know, a death sentence. Good that you were able to reframe it for them. Yeah, that was exactly. And even my mom like had a, a mammogram last month where it was like they needed to rescreen and, and she went back and they needed to see it again. And she was freaking out that she had breast cancer. And I said, I was like, mom, even if you do, it'll be okay. It's like six months of chemo and then, you know, you'll be fine. Don't worry. The survival rates are great. And I realized I'm like <laughs> making it sound like it's no big deal just because I've been through it, you know, and I'm like, oh no, you'll be fine. Don't worry. And I, people that are going through it are like, it's very traumatic, obviously, but everything worked out fine, thankfully. But, um, but I noticed that my even my opinion on cancer now is like, oh, it'll be okay. You can do it. Chemo sucks. Yeah, but you get through it. You know, you, this is what you do. You have to do this. And it, it's so much more – I've, like, minimized it so much in my head, you know, than what it was before I had it. But now that I've been there and done that, it's just like childbirth, you know. Like, where, oh, like, like you think about, like, oh, I can never have a baby. It's so scary. I can never, ever have a baby. Then you just have a baby. And then you're like, oh, i do it again. <laughs> like, in your head, it becomes okay. But I think your approach to it is really amazing because we spoke to um, another, another young adult and he was saying, he was like, you know, the only time I cried was I think one time when he got sick because he, it was not because of the cancer, but he was just like, oh, another thing. But his approach to it the entire time was like, you know, it's going to be fine. My team, my healthcare team is great. My family is great. So I feel like the perspective that you have you know, towards it and your approach towards treatment or towards the whole, the word cancer. I know, I know for me, my grandmother ended up passing from kidney cancer as well. And when she and I would speak, like, you hear the word cancer and it's automatically the same thing. We would say, oh my gosh, cancer, it Mm -hmm. automatically means a horrific future. Mm -hmm. And not to minimize or diminish those who are having a horrible time with it, but I think the approach to it was something that really makes the difference for how someone goes on that journey. Because, Mm -hmm. If you approach it with this is something that's going to kill me, mm-hmm. then it's much more of a mountain that you're at crossing or climbing. I think your approach is also something that I think is so amazing because it lets people know that there's hope. It's something that might happen, right. but your approach to it can be so much different. Yeah, and I the one thing that my specialist told me was I said, how do I make this not come back? Is there a way? And she said, the only thing I can tell you that, I notice when people recur early is that stress can play a role is they have stressful lives or they're extremely stressed. And guess what? Thinking that you're going to die every single day is super stressful. So I, to avoid that, (laughs) have taken this, you know, this viewpoint that, uh, yes, it's something that I have. But even on the list of things to describe me, if you ever ask me, like, some of the top five things to describe myself, I would never say cancer patient or cancer survivor. I feel like it's, it's an important part of my life. It's part of me, but I'm also a lot of other things. And it's just not define who I am. It will never define who I am. When I need to remember how strong I am as a person, I do remember it and I do think about it or how I can overcome anything. I think about it. But, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I am a mom and I'm a friend and I love to, you know, go out and drink wine with my friends. I'm a wife. I'm an actor. I'm a model. I'm, you know, an important part of my kids preschool. Like I have all these other roles (laughs) that that I happily play to avoid stressing myself out. That's what you have to do. And I I think that is a very important thing for all cancers. I think stress can play a role in recurrence or in progression. And so with a disease that's considered 
quote-unquote incurable. I guess incurable is another way of saying terminal, but <laughs> I mean, not necessarily terminal, but do you know what I mean? It is because you're not going to ever survive it. But life is also terminal. Everyone's going to die at some point. So I've, I've definitely had to um, take that point of view. And also, I came from a place of gratitude that it wasn't my daughter. I think that really helped every day when I put her to bed after I had to be, you know, at chemo or whatever it was. And it was a hard day. I would always think to myself, thank God it wasn't my daughter. Thank God it's me and not her. I'm so happy it's me and not her because that would have been a whole different level. And I know I can get through it. Um, as a mom, I, having a child with cancer, I don't know if I can get through that. Truthfully. It's, I mean, I'm sure when it's presented to you, do what you can. But I was so thankful that it was me, that that also helped me get through it a lot. It was coming from a place of gratitude and of also thanking myself that it wasn't worse because there are so many other things that could be worse than this. And I think you also have communication because yeah. a lot of people that – are scared or have anxiety about it coming back or what's going to happen, you know, tomorrow. We were speaking with a social worker and she said, well, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? If it comes back again, you're going to go into your doctor, you're going to speak with your doctor, you're going to come up with a plan and you're going to go through that plan. So really the communication too, when you have it with your doctor, when you know what to expect, Mm-hmm. When you know that the next time there's a plan, there's always going to be a plan. Right. Yeah. Especially with lymphoma. I mean, you have, there are so many treatments. There are so many successful drugs, immunotherapies, chemotherapies. Every single day I, I get updates. I get newsletters about new things coming through, new clinical trials with success, new FDA approvals. And every day it gets more and more hopeful as a lymphoma patient. It does. There's been a lot with follicular lymphoma, and they understand the disease better at this point. Right, right, which is very important. And, I, you know, doctors need to know how to inform patients that have this about what they have. And it's, you know, when I, re- I read in my Facebook group, somebody compared it to diabetes. They said it's a chronic condition that you treat, and then it goes away, and then maybe it comes back or flares up, and you treat it again. Maybe it, then it goes away, and you have to kind of manage it your entire life, but it is manageable. And so when I think about it like that, it's very doable for me. I'm, I'm okay with that. You know, I can, I, can, I can handle staying on top of my health and making sure that when it does come back, I handle it. That's, that's the best way for me to look at this is a chronic condition. And just the word treatable, I, I think about that word all the time, treatable, treatable, treatable. I never think of the word incurable. I, even when I read that online, it makes me annoyed <laughs> because <laughs> that's a very sad thing to read about something that you have. But if you read the word treatable and you know that, yes, there are many options and continually new options being developed. And this, all of the new immunotherapies and CAR T-cell stuff coming out is so incredibly promising as a lymphoma patient. We don't even know yet how good it could be, you know? So I'm just saying hopeful that treatment keeps going in that direction, uh, less than a necessarily chemotherapy-driven direction. I know that if it does come back and when it does, that there's a whole big old list of things that will work against it. Very true. So for the person listening or for the people listening, both patients and caregivers who are like, okay, well, Rochelle's story is super amazing and impressive. <laughs> How do I keep my spirits high? How do I maintain that same hope that she has? I think you take one day at a time and you do not obsess over what's going to happen and how the future is going to play out because you do not know and nobody knows. And you come from a place of gratitude where you can always find something to be thankful for. Even if you're diagnosed with an incurable cancer, you know, could it be worse? Yes, it could be worse. And every day that I wake up and I feel okay, I'm so thankful. And that's most of the time. And 
As a new cancer patient, I would advise them to not rush into anything, to take time to absorb the information, to share the information, how they choose to share it. There is no wrong way to be a cancer patient. Um, I chose to keep it pretty private. I didn't want to tell everyone, you know, even my grandparents. I didn't want to share it with everyone because I didn't, I wasn't ready to accept everyone's opinion on it. I needed to come to terms with it myself and figure out what I wanted to do and what was right for me and, you know, that's how I chose to go about it. And you really cannot judge anyone on how they choose to go about being a cancer patient because everyone does it differently. And it's a very, very personal, sacred thing. And I think it's important to just remember that the way you choose to go about it is okay. There's no wrong way. And take your time, absorb the information, but also remember that today is a new day and you're here and you're okay. And there's so many treatments coming out that this is not the end of the world. So true. You mentioned that you chose not to go public or you, or you chose to be private about, you know, your diagnosis. In doing this podcast, <laughs> are you not going to be public with this information? <laughs> yeah, because I've so and now this is kind of just one of the steps. Yeah, I actually am. I think once I was okay, then it was all fine. <laughs> you know, once I, once I was in remission, I was like, oh, yeah, I had this, but now I'm fine because everyone's so scared. And so when you can, when you can share information, but there's a happy ending already. No one's freaking out about it. You know, when you're newly diagnosed and you tell someone you have this cancer, everyone's obviously extremely concerned. Is it going to be okay? What's going to happen? I just wasn't really ready for that. So being able to share it from a point of view of saying, I have cancer. It's incurable. However, I'm currently in remission and I'm going to be totally fine. And if it comes back, I'll be fine then too. Look at me. I look the same. I feel the same. I'm doing great. Everyone's, you know, obviously concerned and is like, oh, oh my goodness. Okay. Oh, okay. But wow. Wow. You're fine. Great. Okay. Versus it being a huge scare and yeah I did tell my very close friends and family but like I, I just chose to go about it a little differently I guess than some people and you, you just never know how it's going to be for you until it happens you know if you would have asked me this a year ago if you were diagnosed with cancer what would you do I would have probably given you a completely different answer like all things in life you have no idea how it's going to be until you're in those shoes that's why I never judge anybody anymore when I hear people the way people handle dramatic things in their lives I've come from the place now where I realize that you really cannot judge anything because you just do not know what it feels like until you've been in that position you know whether it be a child's sickness di- diagnosis or losing a parent or losing a job or getting a divorce I mean there's so many things people go through and I definitely used to maybe think to myself oh I would have handled that differently but now I never ever do that because being in this position I've realized like I you just never know. You just never know how you're going to choose to react. And, you know, me, it was building my little shell around me of my close <laughs> people and, and then living my life every day normally. I, I would go to the dry cleaners. I would go to the gym. And it was fun for me to not have to share it with anybody and to have it be my little secret that I had been getting chemo the day before. You know, and everyone's like, how are you? I'm great. How are you? And just have it be my little thing. It made it easier for me. You know, but for my dad, when he was sick with cancer, he was like, I remember being at dinner and he'd be like telling everyone, you know, and he was much more open about it and you know shared it much more openly he would like have it on his Facebook and things like that and you just you just never know how it's going to be for you or how someone's going to react point there really is no normal to how someone can react how someone will respond the social worker that we're speaking to that's pretty much what she said she was like you know mm-hmm. what there's no normal situation I mean this mm-hmm. is something that never was in your life before and now is and so mm-hmm. your reaction to it your thoughts about it you don't know what those will be until you're faced with having to respond to it. I think it's very important that people, you know, also know that, I mean, there's no right way to react to something like this. It's just, right. you know, it's one of those things you learn as you go. Definitely. <laughs> and I still learn every day. And I trust me, my opinion, my moods and opinion, opinions on it daily do 
you know, vary. Um, some days when I'll read something online, like recently I read in a newsletter that with follicular lymphoma, if it recurs within two years, it's a much worse prognosis than if it were to reoccur after two years. And something about reading that freaked me out. And I was like, became obsessed with this two-year mark where I was like, okay, two years from June 27th, that's June 2019, June 2019, June, that's two years. And I became obsessed with this whole thing. And then I had to really step back and realize this is not healthy. And that's not how I'm going to live my life. So I just forgot about it. And I thought, you know what? Every case is different. And even if it does come back in less than two years, I'll treat it. It'll be fine. And they're continually working on new treatments. That's just something they said for now. In two years, it could be totally different. You know, it's really it's really hard not to get stuck in that information, though, and to obsess over it. That's the problem. With all the information we're given, sometimes it's a bad thing because your brain can become obsessed with the statistic or with the fact. And truly, I'm not a percentage. I'm not a number on the internet. You know, I'm myself and my lymphoma is different than everyone else's and I'm going to handle it differently than everyone else does. And, you know, cancer patients are like snowflakes. <laughs> Everyone's a little different. <laughs> That's true. That's true. That's true. But, but. It's so funny because, I mean, when my grandmother was diagnosed with um, kidney cancer, that's exactly what we did. I went online. My family went online. This was the first time that like, we were touched by cancer. So with us being a very, very close family, we went online and tried to find everything that we could think of. But then to your point, it was a matter of, okay, when did that article come out? Mm-hmm. You know, who wrote that article? There's so many other factors to take into account. And I think that's that's very important to keep in mind because, I mean, you click on the first link and you go and you run with it yeah. as opposed to actually doing the research and saying, oh, okay, well, you know, I have to take into account that that was before this drug or this, you know, you never know. So I think that's very important to remind people that the Internet does not have all the answers. No. <laughs> and statistics are so misleading. And I think as humans, we love numbers and we love stats. Like I love if I read that, you know, something is 99 percent. I love that. I love seeing 99 percent. I love 100 percent. I love even 95 <laughs> percent. You know, I love percentages. I love numbers. I want to know what my odds are, this and that. But you have to really step back from that because you are one single case, you know, out of tens of thousands across the world. And your case is not necessarily going to fall into place with what those numbers say. And I you know, like that 10 to 20 year, or 10 to 15 year thing I first read, I was obsessed with 10 to 15 years from now, what was going to happen. And I was like, okay, my daughter's going to be probably going, I'll see her go to prom. I won't see her get married. I'll, um, oh, I'll never have to be in my 60s. I'll be, I'll never get great hair. Oh, weird. Cool. Like, you know, I just became like this weird number thing. And I had to really stop doing that because that's really not how this goes and you cannot compare yourself to numbers or to stats and I and I know cancer patients I mean it's the first thing that comes up when you google your type of cancer is the stat is the progression free survival is overall survival is all the different numbers and it's impossible not to think about those things but you really just can't obsess over it because it does not play a role in your treatment in your survival you know in the way you're going to live your life you have to go above and beyond that and just keep hope that your case is different. And in the last 10 years, the landscape with follicular lymphoma has changed so much that now when you call us here and get an information specialist, you're going to get totally different information than if you would have called two years ago. Which is why I really do agree with the watch and wait, if possible, because the treatments that are available are constantly changing and getting better and better. So if you can put off treating it initially, that might be better. I probably would have had to still get treatment because, like I said, my tumor was so large. My main you know, in my abdomen was so big that who knows what it could have done to my other organs. But I think that the way that you rush into treatment with most cancers is much different with this. You can you can take your time to learn about it, to think what do you really want to do, to get many opinions, to talk to specialists, to talk to other survivors, what's worked, what hasn't. There's there's so much time on your side, which is amazing because, you know, 
this whole it's already it's blood cancer <laughs> blood's everywhere in your body so it is already for me it's already <laughs> spread everywhere <laughs> you know i'm not trying to i'm not fighting the clock against it spreading like most cancers you know it's different even like when i'm telling my mom like i couldn't even tell him like what stage because everyone thinks stage four is the right. just end of the end but stage four blood cancer is extremely treatable it has it's, blood everywhere. Exactly. <laughs> so it, it, but trust me, I didn't tell anybody the stage for a long time because I knew if they heard the stage, they'd be like, you know, really freaked out just because it's very scary sounding. Because every other cancer, a stage four is very scary, but it's much different. And even my doctor said, he was like, when I asked him, I was like, what stage am I? He's like, you're stage four, but that doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter. That's what he said. It's true, though. It's, it's a different education for a blood cancer. And when people have cancer, any other type of cancer, they're used to these terms. And then when you get a blood cancer, we find ourselves re-educating people on what stage really means to, to them at their type of cancer, because it does mean something different with follicular lymphoma. Right, completely. And people think that stage means like prognosis. Like stage yes. one means you'll be fine. Stage two means you should be fine. Stage three, a uh, little scary. Stage four, <laughs> oh, you're done. I mean, that's what I thought. That's 100% what I thought. And so... <laughs> When I said stage four, I was like, oh, this is, this is real bad, <laughs> you know. But like I said, when he explained it to me, he's like, all stage means is where it is in your body. So if it's mm-hmm. located in one area, lymphoma is stage one, this, that. And he's think about it, blood goes everywhere. So it's very easy for lymphoma to be in your bone marrow. It's very easy for it to move around your lymph nodes. It's going to be, you know, you'll, it's still extremely treatable. And you have to really, I had, I mean, I told so many people that. I told my mom, I told my husband, I told everyone when they found out what stage it was that I had to explain the stage does not mean prognosis with liquid lymphoma. Stage is about where it is in your body. That's all it is. You're right. So you reframed everything. You redefined everything for your family and friends. <laughs> I hope I'm so. Gl- yeah. I'm glad that you provided them with that information and that you really did communicate. And I think that's one of the most important things. And I think that's why you've been so successful in your journey, because you articulate yourself so well. And I know that throughout your journey, you just asked your questions and <laughs> got all that information. And you really interpreted the information the way that I think it, it was meant to be interpreted. And I think that's why you can be so positive because there are positive things mm-hmm. in this journey. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. And I'm, I'm on the board of directors for this cancer research organization in L.A. called the Concern Foundation, where they raise money towards cancer research. And at one of the meetings, or at my first meeting, actually, everyone was going around introducing themselves. And I was the only cancer survivor there. And then I, and so I was like, oh, I'm Rochelle, you know, I'm a cancer survivor, lymphoma, explain myself. And as everyone went around, they were just like, I'm a lawyer, I'm a mom. I saw LuLaRoe, I, like everyone just had a different <laughs> position. And then I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, all of these people are not even directly affected by cancer. But they're here giving their time towards cancer research. And it kind of like completely grounded me in a different way where I like, obviously, I really care because it is my life. I mean, I'm 100 percent LS. You guys call me. I'll do anything for you because the money that is given is going towards my survival directly. But people that are part of these organizations that give towards organizations that do it out of the kindness of their heart or because they generally see how this is a part of our new society, that people are getting cancer younger and we need more money going towards research and new kinds of therapies and people that aren't directly affected by it in a personal way like I am where they are, you know, a patient and it's their own personal livelihood and survival. I'm so incredibly thankful because I realize Obviously, I'm going to be here giving this interview, but for you guys and for everyone else, it's so wonderful. And as a cancer patient and a, you know, now cancer survivor, it means so, so much to me to see people giving 
you know, giving their time, giving their money, giving their energy towards cancer research and cancer in general. It really means a lot. So thank you, guys. Thank you. So, Rochelle, we're curious. Are there any hopes to expand your family? And if so, what preparation or conversations would you be having or are having at this time? Well, I'm going to try and get pregnant next year. It was actually really hard for me to even come to terms with it because I, from what I know about pregnancy, which is like one of the reasons why you shouldn't be eating sushi and you have to stay away from certain cheeses is because pregnancy is an immunosuppressor. So that's just a fact, you know, and the doctor agreed. So when you have an immune system cancer like lymphoma in my head and it recurs, I told my doctor, I was like, so I don't understand how I can get pregnant and not have it recur because if my immune system goes down at all i'm scared this is going to come back so and he even said he's like which is so ridiculous but there's really no research on follicular lymphoma and pregnancy because most people my age don't have it so he even said he's like i know hodgkin's lymphoma there's no correlation most cancers there's no correlation ones that are that are hormone driven there is correlation but lymphoma is not hormone driven what you have so he said in, he said in my opinion there's no correlation and it should be fine I still was so hesitant because I felt, what if I get pregnant and then it comes back and I'm pregnant or I'm breast, like just obsessing over that. But after I spoke with him and he reassured me that it should not have anything to do with the hormones involved with pregnancy, it would be fine. He said, if I waited, Rituxin, you're supposed to wait one year after uh, your last infusion to try. And he said that was on the very conservative end. So he said, you know, in about a year. It should be totally fine to try as long as your blood work looks great. And he wants me to do a, a scan before I try, which I agree to, obviously, because that'll just give you the peace of mind to go into it, you know, from a, as healthy as I can be. And I think also letting go of this 15 to 20 year life expectancy thing, because at first in my head, I'm like, I'm not going to bring another child into the world and then only be here for the first 15 years of it. And I had to really get past that and, and understand that, you know, my life expectancy is hopefully really, really long. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I'll be able to, you know, see both of my children become adults, hopefully, and hopefully become, grand, you know, a grandparent one day and, and not obsess over those stats and numbers that I read 11 months ago on the Internet, you know, that first night. So that's plan. Hopefully I'll yeah. try next next summer and have a baby to share with you guys. Yeah, <laughs> if you want to update, sure, yep. if you want it all. <laughs> all right, done deal. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rochelle, for those kind words. Thank you so much for sharing your story, for being extremely transparent and being honest about how you decided to approach this, I think that patients like you allow others who may have approached this diagnosis of cancer, you know, in a very understandable way, based off of the history of cancer and based off of what we know of the disease. It's very understandable to approach it in a way that is scared and, you know, can be one that carries a, a dark cloud. I mean, that is what comes with a diagnosis like this. However, your story and stories like your own and just having conversations like the one we had today is one that instills hope in everyone listening because it allows you to reframe cancer and what that means for your for yourself. So again, thank you for the story of hope, for perseverance, the power of community, and also the strength and power of accurate information. We wish you the most success and continued great health throughout your journey. And again, thank you to everyone listening today. I hope that you're as encouraged and inspired as we were. Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. 
We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time. <laughs>